0: So good to have you back, William. Brothers and sisters, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find this on page 947. Tonight we're going to hear something of the settled purposes of the Almighty God. And that's such a good thing to hear, isn't it? One of the ancient Greek philosophers once said that you can never step into the same river twice. And of course he was right. The moment you step into a river, then step back out of it. The river has changed. It's flowed. It's a different river. You cannot step into the same river twice. And that river, of course, is our lives. Everything seems to change around us all the time, especially now. I mean, it's not year to year or month to month. It seems moment to moment. The whole world seems to be built on nothing but shifting sands. All is in flux. All is evolving. Everything seems built on change, and nothing remains the same, not even marriage, supposedly, not even gender, according to some. But the Apostle Paul knew what would not change, what could not change, and he gloried in it. Oh, did he glory in it. That's what I'm praying for this evening. Give your attention to the settled purposes of God as we find them together in Romans chapter 11. I'll be beginning with verse 25. Hear the word of God. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, how we thank you for this Sabbath rhythm of beginning our week together, the first day of the week. Sunday, the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, begun in rest. Not our works, not our labors, but our resting in you and your promises. So we pray for that now. May we come to rest ourselves in the prophetic utterance of our God. Through Jesus Christ, who is ever prophet, priest, and king to his people. Amen. The apostle, as we began our reading a moment ago, the apostle is in mid-thought about God's history of what I called last week his holy horticulture where the sovereign Lord breaks off the unfaithful Jewish branches from the historic salvation tree. Those Jews who had rejected Messiah are broken off, though he keeps the Jewish covenantal root to the tree. And then he grafts the wild Gentile branches onto the salvation source through ministries like that of Paul. And finally, in his thinking last week and this week, the Lord looks ahead in time to when he will graciously graft Jewish branches back on again, back to their own root in the now hybridized covenant of redemption with the old and the new peoples of God united forever, never to part again. Now in verse 25, the apostle declares his reason for sharing the revelation of God's sovereign saving work in salvation. Look at verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. See, Paul doesn't want the Gentile followers of Jesus in Rome to start thinking they're superior to those Jews who rejected the Christ. For God has allowed his ancient people to do so only so he can bring the Gentile peoples in through their very rejectionism. God is using the sin of his old covenant people sinlessly. As we said last week, he's he's teasing out of the wreckage of human depravity, a perfect salvation. The Jews fell crossing the stream, as it were, only so the Gentiles could walk over them to the other side. So the largely Gentile church in Rome could only be humbled by all that has happened and must not think themselves wise now in this verse Paul labels the grafting and regrafting of peoples in salvation history he labels it a mystery not a mystery in the sense of something we can't know the answer to but in a sense the opposite of that it is a biblical mystery the Greek word is mysterion it is something that was once utterly unknowable completely unknowable, but is now being revealed by God through special revelation. Paul says in another place that gospel preachers and teachers are stewards of the mysteries of God. These are things that can now be known, but only because God has chosen to reveal them. The Greek word mysterion is rooted in the idea of shutting one's mouth. So we cannot speak to these matters. Only God can speak to these matters. In other words, salvation history is now unfolding and the Holy Spirit has given Paul special, unique insight into it all, which he's now sharing with the congregation here in Rome. He wasn't the first to share such things either. Jesus himself says something very similar in Luke chapter 21 verse 24 regarding the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus said, "They, the speaking of the Jews, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled." Well, it was good news indeed in the ears of the Roman believers that they were living in the times of the prophesied, the prophesied times of the Gentiles. Because what that told them was, God has not saved them as some kind of afterthought. They weren't a plan B in case the Jews did not receive Jesus. No. All along, he had planned to save them. This is not God sort of making it up as he goes in human history, responding to circumstances that present themselves. This is a mystery, Paul says, a mysterion long known by God, but now coming to be known by his people as God reveals his master plan to them. My... Dearly beloved, late Uncle Horace Turberville, my father's brother, was a star running back in high school in South Carolina. He also ended up playing a number of years at Clemson in the 1950s. And I spent a lot of time at his house in the summers at a boys' athletic camp that he ran at this college in South Carolina. And sometimes in the evenings, we would look at old black-and-white film of him running the ball in high school and college. And Uncle Horace, oh, how I wish you had known him, he was a character. And he once said to me, Dean, everyone thinks it's hard to play running back. But all you have to remember is if they're coming at you from the right, run left and vice versa. Through using the language of divine mystery, Paul is making it clear that the inclusion of the Gentiles in salvation is not merely God running right when the Jews went left. It is not merely God responding to what man does by making the best of a bad situation. I I think we assume that at times, don't we? That God uh, taking the gospel to the Gentiles is just the Lord making good spiritual lemonade from the bitter lemons of rejection that his old covenant people presented to him. But no, no, no. Our confession of faith teaches us God has ordained not only the ends, but he's ordained the means to the ends. And so nothing takes God by surprise. He never needs a plan B or a set of options for contingencies. And so what is this marvelous Mystery, this mysterion ordained by God Himself that is being revealed here. What is this unfolding of God's great plan? Look at verse 25. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now first of all, Israel's hardening is just partial. Some Jews, of course, did indeed follow Jesus, including all his first disciples. And this hardening, this partial hardening, had a distinct purpose. So that the fullness of the Gentiles would come in. Now that implies that the hardening is not permanent. Dr. R.C. Sproul said the word until here strongly suggests a terminal point to the hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so make no mistake about what this means, beloved. It indicates that in the future, when the mission to the Gentiles is accomplished or largely accomplished, there will come... A miraculous conversion of worldwide Jewry to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you doubt that, look at what follows here. Verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This whole section, of course, is written for Gentiles, but it's also these several chapters, especially this chapter, primarily about the Jews. And the glorious promise revealed right here is that all of Israel will be saved. Now, I think it's very tempting to say that Paul's focus has subtly and suddenly shifted away from cultural and the ethnic people of Israel to what he calls in in Galatians, the Israel of God, that is spiritual Israel. He talked about spiritual Israel as recently as Romans chapter 9. In other words, it's tempting to say that the words, all of Israel will be saved, simply means that all the elect Jews and Gentiles who believed in Jesus will be saved. What what we mean when we commonly speak of spiritual Israel. John Calvin thought that's what was being referred to here, for instance. But I think that reading is highly unlikely. Both before and after this verse, in its immediate context, Paul is clearly talking about ethnic Israel. I mean, that's the whole point here in a way. This isn't spiritual Israel. There are many Old Testament prophecies about Israel's repentance and salvation, ethnic Israel's repentance and salvation at the culmination of history when God is wrapping up his saving purposes on that day as it's often referred to. Look at the sort of Latter chapters of Zechariah, if you want to, to see prophecy after prophecy of a grand saving work of Jews. In some places, clearly messianic in nature. For all those reasons, I think this famous passage refers to a coming massive conversion of ethnic Jews to Christ. It's not going to be a convert here and there as we sometimes. See today, we have several converted Jews, or I would say fulfilled Jews, in our congregation here. As we'll see later in verse 32, while the word all does not have to mean absolutely all, it certainly means at least a large majority. So, as I said last week, in this glorious future, this Mysterion is revealing. Jews will be known generally as Christ-embracers and not Christ-erasers. This has always been the beautiful hope of those who know and love our Jewish Savior. Samuel Rutherford, the great Presbyterian minister and writer from Scotland, wrote this. He said, Oh, to see the sight... Next to Christ coming in the clouds, the most joyful of all. Our elder brethren, the Jews, and Christ, fall upon one another's necks and kiss each other. They have been long asunder. They will be kind to one another when they meet. O day, O longed-for and lovely day dawn. Oh, sweet Jesus, let me see that sight which will be as life from the dead, thee and thy ancient people in mutual embraces. On Rutherford's tombstone is written the words, Acquainted with Emmanuel's love. And he really was, wasn't he? Just in the description of this. He knows the love of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the greatest of biblical prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled apart from the coming of Christ itself. My devout and uh, faithful Nazarene grandmother had lots of ideas about Bible prophecy. I'll never forget the day she set me down and her kitchen in Camden, South Carolina, and, and uh, she told me that the, the, the swarming locusts that you read about in the Prophecy of Joel was really a prediction of swarms of Russian helicopters fighting Israel at Armageddon, which was coming any day back in the early 1970s. Beloved... Don't hang your hat on prophecy interpretations like that, even if your beloved grandmother does. Here is the prophecy of the future you should hang your hat on. When people ask me if the Lord's return is soon, and I certainly understand why the question is asked. Uh, Wars and rumors of wars catastrophes in nature, plagues and epidemics, the whole bit. I understand why the question is answered, the apostasy of churches. Oh, yes, I understand the question. But my standard answer is I don't believe that the fullness of the Gentiles has been brought in yet, and what I'm even more sure of is that all of Israel has not been saved. We'd have heard about that. The revelation of this great mystery, or what we might call this prophetic promise, is not based in some kind of spiritual naivete or happy delusion. Paul knows full well that Jews and Christians are not now sitting around a campfire singing kumbaya. No, Paul is realistic. Look with me at verse 28. As regards the gospel, they, speaking of the Jews, are enemies for your sake. And that enmity continues down to this day. I was talking to Lori Burroughs after last Sunday's sermon on this topic from this chapter. And Lori, as, as most of you know, is both Jew and Christian. She was raised as a Jew. Uh, and she made a great point. You know, she said, in the Jewish community, you can be a Jew and convert to Buddhism and still be considered a Jew. You can even, she said, be an atheist and still be considered Jewish. But you cannot be a Christian and be considered a Jew. It's as though they somehow know, isn't it? They somehow know that despite the unspeakable cruelties inflicted on Jews by nominally Christian nations in history. Jesus changes things. And Jesus will change them from the Jews they were to the fulfilled Jews they will be in union with him. And meanwhile, the Jews' current status as opponents of the gospel is all for our sake under God's providence... And so Paul adds that while they are, quote, enemies for the Gentiles' sake, at the very same time they are, he says, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Even though they are for now opposing the Christ of God, yet they are beloved. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. That is, for the sake of the promises God made to the to their fathers in antiquity. Promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Promises made to Moses and made to David. Promises made by God. You see how Paul's reasoning into the future now from the starting place of God's absolute fidelity and integrity and wisdom in his covenant-making work in the world He knows that God does not change horses midstream. He knows God doesn't break his promises or unelect a people. He knows God's purposes and plans are not diverse. They are one. In other words, God doesn't try one thing to see if it works, then try something else in a different dispensation. As the American theologian Charles Hodge said, it is inconsistent with the idea of absolute perfection that the purposes of God are successive or that he ever purposes what he did not intend or that one part of his plan is independent of other parts. It is one scheme and therefore one purpose. That's not the way we live, of course. You and I change our plans and our purposes all the time. I went to law school until I dropped out and went to seminary. I went into the mainline Presbyterian denomination until I left it and went into the ARP church. I told someone not long ago that God tenderly leads me by letting me run headlong into brick walls So that I have to turn and go a different direction. You see, with me, it's not that subtle. It's pretty clear. But course changes have happened. Not so with God. Not so with the Lord. As Paul says in verse 29, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God does all his holy will. He keeps all his promises. He ordains both the means and the ends, both the journey and the destination. When Abraham's faith stumbled while he and Sarah were in Egypt, and when his and Sarah's aged old bodies failed to produce children, And when Abraham connived with a servant girl to force God's hand, as it were, regarding a child and heir, none of it calls the purposes of God to swerve, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. When Moses dragged his feet in answering God's call and when he all but despaired at the sin of Israel with the golden calf, God's purposes were accomplished through it all for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. When a grumbling, resentful Israel sinned grievously and was required to wait for a whole generation to enter the promised land, God matured his people through their wilderness training years because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. When David, the supposed forerunner of the Christ, no less, killed a fellow Israelite, In order to steal his wife for himself, his repentance became enshrined in the 51st Psalm and we use it for public confession and assurance of his grace to this day for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. When Jonah spurned the call of God and fled in the opposite direction from Nineveh, well, you know what happened there and it's all because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Plans of God do not change because of the changes in fickle people or the wicked assertions and conspiracies of the human heart. God rules and overrules in the affairs of men. God never backtracks, not once. He never has to do a workaround. Everything he has planned is on time and No chaos in the world has ever disrupted the plan of God. While our lives appear to us to be, in the famous words of the Beatles, a long and winding road, or in some cases maybe the inside of a drier cycle, spinning around and around, it's not so with God. God's always going straight ahead according to purpose and to plan. In the opening chapter of the prophecy of Ezekiel, one of the most wild and wonderful visions in the whole Bible, the Jewish priest Ezekiel is down by the Chibar River Canal sharing in the heartbreak of the deportation with all his fellow Jews there, and suddenly... He says the hand of the Lord was upon him and he sees before him a glorious and most exotic vision out of a stormy wind and a great cloud came brightness, brightness all around lightning flashes within the cloud and then the likeness of four living creatures each with four faces and each with four wings so they face all directions at all times and there's a lot more in there. You can read it. They have wheels on their sides, like wheels even within wheels that are spinning. And it's all happening under this great expanse above them. And above the the great expanse is a great throne with a likeness of a human appearance sitting upon it. This is Christ. Governing all that happens on the earth. And the creatures representing all living things only move forward, never turning. For they face all four directions at once. Three times in his vision, Ezekiel stresses that fact. They do not turn. They only move forward. And that's really the greatest thing about this vision, by the way. God is always going straight ahead according to his purpose, according to his plan. Even when you live with exiled Jews down by the Babylonian river canal, God is moving forward and he's in control. And so, dear Christians, we know that no evil, no darkness, no chaos in this world thwarts God's land. And all of this is true a thousand times over in the life of our Christ. James Montgomery Boyce quotes J.I. Packer. Now that's, a, that's double name dropping there, isn't it? Packer writes, no human life has ever been so completely guided by God and no human life has ever qualified so comprehensively for the description, a man of sorrows. Divine guidance set Jesus at a distance from his family and fellow townsmen, brought him into conflict with all the nation's leaders, religious and civil, and led finally to betrayal, arrest, and the cross. By every human standard of reckoning, Packer writes, the cross was a waste, a waste of a young life, a waste of a prophet's influence, a waste of a leader's potential. We know the secret of its meaning and achievement only from God's own statements about it. Indeed. Indeed. For that apparent waste, that loss, that suffering was actually the very turning point of all history and the highest of all human achievements. And because we know that, we know that each of the other stories in the Bible and our own personal stories as well are all part of this great unfolding master plan though it's beyond our tracing out, is nevertheless certain and perfect in its plan, which will have a grand and blessed consummation, writes Dr. Boyce. A grand and blessed consummation. Christian, do you believe your life Miserable as parts of it may have been, maybe as some parts of it are even now, do you believe that your life is part of a perfect plan, a plan that can't be thwarted, a plan that will bring God great glory, A plan that will end happily in a kingdom of love and endless peace and praise. A perfect consummation. You know, Paul told Timothy that there was a crown laid up for him in heaven. Your crown is there too, beloved brother, beloved sister. Your crown is there. It's already on heaven's layaway plan. It's already purchased. It's there. It's accomplished. All the saints will persevere in their faith, and his gifts and his calling are irrevocable. You will wear the crown of righteousness before the King of righteousness and glory more certainly than you put on your Sunday best clothes this morning. Do you know that? Do you know that personally? Do you know that the Lord's gifts and calling are irrevocable? Do you know you'll wear the crown of righteousness, not because you've maintained it by being a good little boy and girl in church, but because the gifts and the calling of the great God are irrevocable? And what he starts, he finishes. I'll tell you one thing I'm not worried about tonight. I'm not worried about being wrong about this. God is bringing the sweetest mercy to you and to the whole world. He has brought it to the Gentiles and is bringing it to them. He will yet bring it to the Jews. None of us deserved it. None of us earned it. And apart from the mystery of Christ being revealed, none of us would have ever even guessed it. But all of it is sure. And all of it is certain for all his elect. Indeed, verse 32 says, he consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Sweet mercy. God will make this human story a tale above all of his mercy and his grace. You can bet on that. When Paul begins to meditate on his own words here, it sends him like a rocket in verse 33 into a rhapsodic exultation at the wonder of his God. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God's judgments in this verse are not his holy expression of justice and wrath. know the meaning here is God's gracious and wise ways of securing his people's salvation through everything that happens to them and around them. And so we are inescapably in debt to him in a way that we could never repay if we had a thousand lifetimes. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And so now God, the great God of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, The God of Jew and Gentile, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and through Him our Heavenly Father, that God of gods now takes center stage and there He will remain forever exalted in glory. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Oh, to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And all the saints said, Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we know from experience that we cannot step into the same river twice. For our life is is changing all the time. All around us life is changing. But you do not change. Nor do your purposes change. For your gifts and calling are irrevocable. You are the rock in the river that does not move. Help us by faith to plant ourselves forever on that good rock, that perch of perfect security, where we will ever be able to flourish and grow in your grace and under your endless fatherly affection. We bless you, God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.